according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in Proverbs 16. We are looking at verse 26 at the moment. And then when we wrap that up, we'll be moving on to 27 through 30. Because we have four villains that get introduced here. Some would say five, some would say three. Uh, depends on how you want to count it. Um, anyway, we'll, uh, we'll deal with these guys here. But first we're going to wrap up verse 26. A worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. The best employee you'll ever have is your own appetite because uh, it reminds you that you need to eat. And that reminder that you need to eat is, uh, is a marvelous motivation. It's a motivation to work. If a man will not work, neither let him eat. And uh, the principles that, that apply there. So we'll talk about diligence, we'll talk about the application of wisdom, which we've dealt with before, and uh, this will be a bit of a review. And then we'll move on to the villains, because in verse 27 <clears throat> we have the worthless man, a man of worthlessness, a belial, as we'll talk about. And then in verse uh, 28 we have the perverse man, the man of perversities, plural, perversities. And then some would create an extra person there with a slanderer uh, in the second part of verse 28. And then we have a man of violence in verse 29. And each of those verses begin with ish. Ish, ish, ish. So you've got the ish of, of worthlessness, the ish of perversity, the ish of violence, the man of violence in uh, verse 29 who entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. And then you have the winker in verse 30. And uh, the wicked winker, I call him. Uh, this is this is a verse that does not start with Ish. And so um, even though I count him as really the fourth villain of, uh, of this uh, uh, quartet, uh, there are a lot of folks that only find three villains because there's only three verses to start with, Ish, Ish, Ish. And okay, I'm fine with that. But as, as it goes, you got the wicked winker. He who winks his eyes does so to devise perverse things. He who compresses his lips brings evil to pass. So those are the four villains and we'll be dealing with them as well. Before we get started this morning though, let's take a time for silent prayer and ask our Father for His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank You we thank you for all of the uh, abundant life blessings that you supply to us. We have life, we have it abundantly, and it's all because of your Son. It's because of his faithfulness, because of what he accomplished, and now what he freely gives us. I thank you, Father, that you've gave us so much while we were enemies. Now how much more can you give us now that we are your children? And so we call upon you once again. We've assembled together to receive instruction. We're here as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So bless us with your word of truth this morning. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so this is main point eight in the outline. While a man may work for another, his hunger works for him. And that's the, the word play that comes out here in verse 26. A worker's appetite works for him. So you have a worker and if you are a worker, I guess it's appropriate to ask who you're working for. 
and uh, a laborer, somebody that is not a not a slave, not a servant. You don't belong to somebody else, but you are working for somebody else. And so, uh, whoever it is that has hired you, uh, as the parable of the the, uh, the different par- parables talk about, the parable of the of the uh, workers. Remember, they uh, they agreed to work uh, for a certain fee. They were going to work all day for that fee, and at the end of the day, they seemed to be pretty upset because later guys came along and decided to work for grace when uh, when these first guys were working for for wages and so uh the the landowner he was generous, he decided to give everybody the same, even the grace guys that only worked a single hour and uh well anyway, you know the parable what i 'm talking about, but we got workers, and when you 're working for somebody else, then he 's the boss he 's the sovereignty he 's in charge. You're working for him, and that's and we understand that's how it works. Well, what works for you is your hunger, and uh, are you going to pay your worker? <laughs> In other words, are you going to eat? Are you going to feed yourself? Because hunger is working for you, and you've got to provide for the one that is working to your benefit. You're going to gain because of the work that they do, and so you want to provide the wage that is uh, that is agreed upon. And uh, so anyway, we see it here. A worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger, his hunger urges him on. And uh, this is what it comes down to here. So uh, where a man may work for another, his hunger works for him. And really, this is the design. This is not um, an accident. This is not a consequence of the fall. Uh, I listed Genesis 3.19 as, uh, as the scripture there. And you'll notice this is not the beginning of hunger or the beginning of eating or the beginning of work. This is just the consequences of sin upon a previous command that had been given and the expectation that work is good. Work is not a part of the curse. And so I think in addition to Genesis 3.19, we ought to go ahead and just add in the um, command that's given in Genesis 1 and verse 29 about food. Genesis 1.29, God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. So Adam and Eve were food eaters plant eaters before they became meat eaters didn't actually get uh, the meat diet until after until the flood until after the flood but nevertheless they were designed to eat the human design is to eat and so uh, before the fall and so this is part of the good arrangement and then the work assignment when he plants them in the garden so chapter 2 verse 9 out of the ground the lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so those trees are given and the command is given in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Now beyond just wild trees all over the planet where you can pick and eat any you know fruit that happens to be growing on any tree, uh, th- these are now your cultivated trees. This is the garden that you're working and uh, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat in the day you eat from it you will surely die all right so all of these things eating is a blessing eating is uh, or hunger is a blessing because hunger then urges us to work and uh, that's the provision for eating and this is the design uh, once the fall comes now there's going to be additional difficulty to obey god's plan and to reap god's blessings 
And so in 3.19, uh, really backing up to verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. He still has the same work assignment, but now he's got to toil through a cursed earth. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. That didn't happen before the curse. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. Now the recognition of this, the you are dust and to dust you shall return is not a part of the curse. The curse is the ground. Cursed is the ground because of you. Adam was not cursed in the sense that the ground was cursed as far as this passage deals with. So the idea that you are the dust and to dust you shall return, that has always been the case. That was, not, that was true before Adam fell. See, should he not eat, he would have starved. Or had he been injured, see, could Adam have been injured? I've had people, this, you'd be surprised, folks will argue this. All right. What if he fell out of a tree, climbing up there to get the fruit? Would he, could he have broken a leg? Could he have been injured? And I've had people just, you know, say, no, no, no. He was sinless. He was perfect. He was, you know, like Superman. He couldn't have been injured. I said, well, wait a minute. Jesus was sinless and perfect, and they scourged him. He bled. They pierced his side thorns in his forehead and dropping, you know, blood was dripping out. Don't tell me that a sinless, perfect human cannot be injured because I have proof that they can be injured. And if you're you're trying to build a theological case here, I got scripture on my side. Let's, let's back up a little bit, start over. Okay. Is, uh, you know, could, could sinless Adam have been injured? Could sinless Adam have starved? Could sinless Adam had starved to death? Could he have been injured just in an accident? Could he have fallen? Could a, you know, there was no animal enmity, so a wild animal wouldn't have wouldn't have eaten him, but he still could have been stepped on by an elephant or some kind of a an accident could have happened. Uh, let's uh, let's start to realize, and then so once you once your mind is open to exploring these these potential injuries, then you start to realize that a sinless body is not a glorified resurrection body. A sinless body is not a body of no more sickness, no more pain, no more death. The first things have passed away. And so in his mortality, that's the key, sinless Adam was still mortal. So when you're reading uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, you're talking about the resurrection. And you're talking about we've borne the image of the earthly, we're going to bear the image of the heavenly. That's not because of sin. We bear the image of the earthly irrespective of sin. We will bear the image of heavenly because our sins are forgiven and we're given eternal life. Mortality gives way to immortality. That's irrespective of sin. Mortality is not a consequence of sin. Physical death is not a consequence of sin. Only spiritual death. Again, the promise is on the day you eat of it you will die. Spiritual death. They didn't die physically the day that they ate the fruit. They died spiritually that, that moment. That Actually when Adam ate the fruit God assigned that judicial punishment then to Adam and Eve. And that's the consequence, not physical death. So we get to the end of the chapter and we see the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like us, one of us, knowing good and evil. 
And now he might stretch out his hand, take also from the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. It doesn't say he'd get saved. It doesn't say that his sins would be forgiven. It doesn't say that his spiritual death would be taken care of. The tree of life is not the provision for spiritual death. The provision for spiritual death is faith in Christ. All right? Tree of life is provision for mortality to, to live. He would have eaten and lived forever physically in a fallen body. As an unbeliever, can you imagine? He might take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. The tree of life is going to be replanted on the new earth, by the way, in the, in the, uh, after the millennium in the fullness of time, in the new heavens and the new earth, when there are no unbelievers. So why do we need a tree of life if there are no unbelievers? Because eating the tree of life is not the solution to spiritual death. There will be no spiritual death in the new heavens and the new earth. First things have passed away. So why do we need a tree of life? It's not provision for spiritual death. It's a provision for mortality. It's a provision for mortality. And so for those thousand generations that are going to be born, they need something to keep them physically alive for a thousand generations. So we have a tree of life, we have the water of life, the river of life, those things are provided in the new heavens and on the new earth. Alright, so he drove the man out and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. And that was of course only necessary until the flood. After the flood destroyed everything then there's no more uh, tree of life, there's no more garden, there's no more, all of the geography is different after the flood, so don't, uh, don't bother trying to look for it now. <laughs> after the flood, all the, the geography is different. So, um, anyway, if, if you ever get this, uh, this question uh, with related to life and death and so forth, Romans 5 gets so abused because they say, through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin. They get, they get locked in onto that and they say there could have been no physical death before Adam sinned and they try to say that Romans 5 is their, is their proof text on that and that just is it's an abuse of the text. Alright? So that uh, if I'm allowed one side trip per hour let's look at Romans 5. It is true that through one man sin entered into the world. Sin singular. Sin as an estate. As a judicial estate. Even though Satan sinned before Adam sinned. Eve sinned before Adam sinned. Those were sins that preceded Adam's original sin. But it was not until Adam sinned then that the singular estate of sin the positional truth reality of in Adam that a state of sin was brought into existence. And so um, through one man now, one man. And um, so we have verse 12, we have uh, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin. And people want to say that's all kinds of death. Spiritual death, physical death, any kind of death, they just say it's all kinds of death. So uh, there was no death before before Adam sinned. And say, well, wait a minute. Well, if, if they're tending the garden, if they're working, if and the minute they pick a fruit, that fruit just died, right? There's got to be at least botanical death before Adam sinned. What about, can we, can we admit that? Can we admit there were other kinds of death? Anyway, death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. 
Positional truth. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. We're all in Adam. And, uh, but then there comes life. And so if life comes through Christ, and um, so verse 15, but the free gift is not like the transgression. If by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound from the many. So uh, if, if, if we're going to say, and then you get the word life, you get uh, reign in life down in verse 17. And so what are you telling me that no one ever lived until Jesus died on the cross? That if, if, we, we, if, we, if you're telling me that it's death of all kinds of death, physical death, spiritual death, every kind of death, well then that must mean every kind of life. There was never any kind of life until Jesus died on the cross. See, and then just throw, it's ridiculous, but you throw up at them and you make them think it through. Well, no, no, the only life that the cross provided for was spiritual life, to be born again, to receive spiritual life. That's what the cross provided for. Yes, thank you. And that's what the curse of Adam was, was spiritual death. And uh, limited to that there. All right. So that's, uh, that's my side trip. That's uh, extra credit, no charge. Um, back to the idea of hunger and working. Ecclesiastes. Uh, if you have human viewpoint and everything is all about eating and then uh, everything is all about living in this life, Ecclesiastes 6, 7. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Here we go. All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. And you talk about uh, what, a, what a futility of life. The whole book is, is Solomon out of fellowship. The whole book is you and me when we're not thinking with divine viewpoint, when we're carnal, when we're just looking at life the way an unbeliever looks at life. And, uh, and how sad is it? Everything is useless. And uh, better than miscarriage than he, as it says here. Verse 6, even if another man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. We're all going to die in the end anyway, so why bother? What's the point? All of a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not satisfied. You work and you work, and you make a pretty good income, and you've got you know, whatever you can uh, afford, and, uh, and you eat, and then great, you had a marvelous meal, and then you get hungry again, you've got to do it again. And you're going to be hungry again, you've got to do it again. And, uh, and there you have it. All right. First Thessalonians 4, 2 Thessalonians 3, these are our New Testament admonishments related to working with your own hands, related to eating. If a man does not work, neither let him eat. That's the, uh, that's the second Thessalonians passage. First Thessalonians. Chapter 4. And uh, this is the walk of sanctification. And uh, you have a personal walk, you have a corporate walk. I want to make sure that you're, you're walking in sanctification individually before the Lord, verses uh, 1 through 8. But then uh, the corporate walk as to the love of the brethren, you have, that's verse 9, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And, and what does it mean to love one another? It's uh, spelled out for us in this, in this passage. It's biblical. It's oriented to our place in the body of Christ. It's not mushy, sentimental emotionalism. Indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. And so 
what does that tell you? It starts with your local church. In this case it would be Thessalonica. But then it extends to other nearby local churches like Macedonia, that would be the Philippians, that would be Berea. Eventually there would be a a church in Apollonia, but I don't think they're there this early in, in the first century. But the Macedonian churches. So you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And so we serve one another, we love one another, we have a, an interaction, obviously it starts with our own flock, but then neighboring assemblies within our reach, within our, the scope of, of where we are in our locality. But then he says, make it your ambition. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. <laughs> I love that. Because that's almost a, an oxymoron, right? To be ambitiously quiet. You know, it seems to us that all the ambitious people I know are not very quiet. You know, the, it, to be ambitious is to be, you know, boisterous, to be outgoing, to be, you know, an A-type personality or whatever, you know. And, and sometimes it just you get the impression, you get the image that the more introverted types, the quiet types, the more, um, what are they, are they called type B if they're not type A? What, what are they called if they're, I don't even know. Um, because I'm a type A and I, I think everybody's like me. The, the whole process, quiet people are not ambitious at all, right? It just seems like it. That's not true. Especially it's not true when the person is being biblical and they want to be ambitious about their quietness. They want to be ambitious about the tranquil life, uh, the peaceful life of, of a New Testament believer priest. So make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. And this is the essence of loving one another so that you will not you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Our attitude towards outsiders, see. And again, you're working for yourself, you're working as a personal ambition but it's still in the scope of the one another context here of a local church. That you will uh, behave properly toward outsiders. Those beyond the locality of the local church. And not be in any need. And the whole point is that we work with our hands and we have an abundance. We're able to share with one another. We're able to share with the brothers and sisters here in the assembly or neighboring assembly. Philippi sent a gift more than once when Paul was in Thessalonica. And that's marvelous. That's a marvelous design. If we learn about, you know, neighboring churches, if we learn about Lost Pines, we learn about Corpus Christi, we learn about other flocks in our in our periphery and struggles that they may be having, absolutely we're going to come alongside and, and be a blessing and be an encouragement related to these things. We can send some funds if that's what they need. And uh, send workers if that's what they need. If hurricane sweeps through and they need to be rebuilt or things like that. All right. So you behave properly towards outsiders and not be any need. The point is, if you're not working and your hunger that should be working for you isn't working for you and you're not working and you're being a slug about it, then uh, you're not going to have, you're not going to be behaving properly. You're not going to have the abundance. All right, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. You know, and for a church that really had no explicit rebuke, this is really the implicit rebuke that you kind of read between the lines and realize he mentioned it in both books and, and you wonder who among them was uh, did he have in mind that, uh, that was being addressed in this regard. 
but he doesn't name names. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 8 through 12. Uh, context here, if we back up, uh, verse 6 says, We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. That phrase, unruly life, it's like the, the behave properly in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians. Uh, he leads an unruly life. He's out of step, not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. That he did, that he set the example. He taught the doctrine and he lived it out. And uh, he says, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. He says, but uh, with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day that we would not be a burden to any of you. And then, you know, of course, funds came from Philippi and. Other provision was made, but uh, he didn't uh, take their food, didn't uh, you know leech off of them and, and not pay for it. He says, not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you would follow our example. Now if they'd have been grace-oriented and had the doctrine and said, Paul, we know you're not leeching off of us, but you've been teaching us the Word of God and we want to bless you uh, with, with finances so that you can eat, then, then, then that's a win-win. That's grace, that's a win-win given in grace, received in grace, Christ is glorified both times, and, uh, and that's a marvelous situation. All right. Then verse 10, while we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. You want to eat? Work. That's what it's about. It's been, that's what it's been ever since Adam and Eve. That's what it's been uh, all along, even before the curse. Uh, hunger will work for you. We hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. So such a person we command and exhort in the Lord. In the Lord. It's not just an earthly thing. It's not just temporal hints for daily life. It's a spiritual reality. Your uh, secular uh, sluggishness is reflective of of soul issues. And uh, verse 12, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion, eat with your own, eat their own bread, and as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. The associations, yes, it's personal, but it's also corporate here in the body of Christ. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person. Do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. You want to have an abundance to share with the one in need, but that's for the one in legitimate need. Not for the one that's just willfully defiance of Scripture and, uh, and living off of everybody else's uh, charity. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. You want to win him back. You want to get him back in fellowship, back in the, in the program, and back to work. So that he can be uh, providing for himself and contributing to the needs of the saints. Alright, so that's the point there, a couple of subpoints on this. The blessings of hard work are frequently taught in Proverbs with a primary noun, adjective, and adverb of diligence, diligent, and diligently. Every time you come across one of those terms in Proverbs, diligence, diligent, diligently. You're centering on a principle that comes from uh, this verse we're looking at here this morning. This aspect here of diligence. You want to be a diligent worker. You want to be a hard worker. The blessings of hard work are frequently taught in Proverbs. And really diligence is part of what we do to image God. 
We are in the image of God. We are to image God as we work. God's a worker. God is productive. The idea that we're not going to be a diligent worker, that we're going to be a slug, that we're going to do the bare minimum, that uh, we're just going to kind of, you know, be the, be, the, be the slug on shift and our, our co-workers will make up the difference, you know. It's a, it's a pretty big assembly line and I can, I can kind of skate a little bit and drift and, and uh, you know, somebody down the line will pick up my slack. You know, as long as, you know, I, I don't want to be too obvious about it where the boss will fire me, but I want to, you know, I don't want to work that hard. So let's try to find a common, let's find a little, a little area here where I can do uh, the, the, the bare minimum to get by and not get fired, okay? What, what am I describing? I'm describing a, a world viewpoint, right? the carnal viewpoint. Um, and sadly, and it should not be a viewpoint of any believer on doctrine. Any believer positive of the Word of God should be the hardest working guy on a shift. He wants to be the one that the fellow, you know, the union comes to and says, hey, quit working so hard. <laughs> You're making the rest of us look bad. I say, well, sorry, but I'm, I'm working as unto the Lord. I'm doing my work for the glory of Jesus Christ. So that's uh, what it comes down to there. Proverbs 10, verses 4 and 5. Poor is he who works with a, with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. So work hard, plan ahead. Don't, uh, don't dither to the last minute. Don't be a procrastinator where it's too late. You know, here it's harvest time, but because you were a slug back during the planting season, you're not really uh, going to reap very much, if anything. Proverbs 12, three verses in Proverbs 12. Verse 11 says, He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. Lacks sense. So there you go, work the land. The land's going to produce, that's what the land is designed to do. Yes, there'll be thistles and thorns, there's going to be you know, difficulties, but nevertheless, when you plant, if you irrigate and plant and tend it and work it, it's going to produce, that's what it does. God designed it that way. Verse 24, the hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. You know, the division of labor is a marvelous thing. And uh, the reward for diligence is, is built in. And the hardest working uh, ought to uh, reap that. The hardest working is who's sowing abundantly should be reaping abundantly. Who's putting in the extra hours, who's putting in the overtime. You know, when you're a business owner especially and you're you know, you may not even get a paycheck depending on what your income's like. But you're putting all the hours in and you don't get to just punch the clock at 5 o'clock, go home and forget about it because you're, you're working, you know, you, you took your home, work home with you and you got all these extra hours to do. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's interesting to me. And then the slug who, uh, <laughs> the slack hand, you know, and you think about it. And then and this is why I think the whole labor movement, the philosophy behind organized labor, it flips sovereignty upside down and says it's the labor theory of value. The workers should be the ones in charge. The workers should have the authority, should call the shots over the owners. They say, wait a minute, you know, it's not your capital that you put to risk. You, you took a job. And, uh, and all these things are, are contrary to God's design. Anyway, that's verse 24. Verse 27, a lazy man does not roast his prey, but the precious possession is a man of diligence. If you took all the money in the United States today and divided it equally among all 300 million people 
And, and if today we all started with the same amount of money, yeah, what's going to happen even just a year from now? Even just, you know, it won't take long. It won't take long. A year from now, five years from now, ten years from now. And you're going to have uh, a division. You're going to have inequity. You're going to have some people absolutely broke and some people absolutely uh, prosperous. It's, and and you know, this whole mythology of equality is just that. Utopia does not exist. Related, Even in heaven's not equal. There's no equality in heaven. Are you kidding me? The one who has ten gets the one from the one that was taken away from the guy that had one. So the guy that had ten gets eleven. There's no equality in heaven. Equality is a satanic myth. All right. Proverbs 13. Let's get more diligence. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. Verse 11, wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers it by labor increases it. The nature of uh, increasing, the nature of the slow and steady and compound income that comes when uh, you take money to make money, when you compound and reinvest the profits. And, uh, you know, when you're willing to do the hard work, when you're willing to sacrifice, when you have deferred gratification because you delayed you chose not to take the, you know, the excess vacations because you're you're uh, you're reinvesting the proceeds back into the business again. Well, there you got it. Biblical. Chapter fourteen and verse twenty-three. In all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. And why does some people talk, 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 talk? Because they think they're entitled to somebody else's profit. Well, says who? They say, well, uh, you know, we're going to get a bunch of voters together and we're going to vote to agree to take your profit. <laughs> Just because you vote on it, make it democratic theft, it's still theft. See, socialism is, is just democratic theft. All right. So talk about it or do it. Go to work, produce, create. You find uh, these things get generated because God designed it this way. Chapter 21 and verse 5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. You're going to be diligent. And the thing is, uh, a terrible enemy of diligence is impatience. The idea that, well, you're tired of working, you want something faster, you want something now. And that's why it gets contrasted here with everyone who is hasty. Right? Hasty is not good. Diligence takes time. And uh, that's the impact of that. Alright, 22.9 He who is generous will be blessed. Well, let's see, there's more here. The, uh, verse 7 or while I'm here I could read verse 6. <laughs> Train up a child in the way he should go. What is that? Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The rich rules over the poor. The borrower becomes the lender's slave. This is so true today, especially when, when we have all this consumer debt everywhere and you're a slave to the credit card company or your student loans or whatever else. So the rich rules over the poor and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. He who sows iniquity will reap vanity and the rod of his fury will perish. He who is generous will be blessed. For he gives some of his food to the poor. 
And you have the opportunity to be generous when you've been diligent, when you have an abundance. That's what it's designed to be. It's designed to be the idea of Christian charity, the idea of grace giving as we serve one another in the local church, as we serve our community, as we serve our neighboring communities. This is how the Father designed it. Whereby uh, we in grace can give of our excess where we can be generous and ready to share. That glorifies the Father. That reflects the Father's character. Not the idea that, well, we're just going to tax everybody and give everybody and uh, everyone gets a living wage even if they're not willing to work. How does that work? I mean, if you don't have to work and the government's still going to pay you, why would you work? Just take the free money and, and have fun. Crazy. Crazy, crazy. All right, that's 22, 9, 28. Nineteen and twenty. He who walks blamelessly will be delivered. That's, I'm sorry, wrong words. Verse nineteen. He who tills his land will have plenty of food, but he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty in plenty. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. And we understand the ancient world, the time Proverbs was written, was an agricultural economy, and and most. Uh, you know, the population was in, in either farming or, or raising uh, animals uh, in an agrarian economy. We still can apply these principles today, even though we're an industrialized modern world, even though we have a very significant, you know, it's a small portion of our population can feed everybody else. So that's, that's a good thing, the, the fact that the Father has blessed us in that regard. Because if you've got, if it takes 90% of your population to feed everybody else then only leaves 10% of your population free to, to pursue other things, to do other what we call leisure pursuits. And so uh, the fact that we have, we can feed everybody with so few people, that's a good thing. That means that others can become more productive in other areas because the principle still holds true. Be productive. Pursue an endeavor that is productive that adds something to your society, that adds something to your culture, that benefits others. So that when you've been productive, you've been rewarded. As Walter Williams says, he, he calls money a certificate of benefit, certificate of value. How have you benefited your fellow man? Well, I did this, and th- this, is my, this is my proof that I benefited my fellow man because they paid me for it. <laughs> and so whatever it is that you've done that's been productive that you've been rewarded for, now you have a certificate called a, you know, a dollar bill that you have as evidence that you have contributed in your community. All right. So the point is productivity. He who tills his land will have plenty of food, but he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty in plenty. And so, you know, your choices that you make uh, the, the kind of training you receive, the, the, the field you enter into, the, you know, if you end up with, uh, we joke about some of the useless college majors that are out there, and you graduate with, uh, you know, a degree in 17th century French lesbian poetry, whatever, okay, great, I'm glad that interests you, but is that productive? What's the, what's the income like with that kind of, uh, with that kind of degree? And you find that no one will hire you. And then you find you're not productive. All right. But the STEM classes, those are hard. <laughs> they take work. I've got to do math and science. 
Yeah? But look how productive it is. Look what it produces. Look what it generates. Anyway, don't get me going on that. Verse 20, a faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. So this is neat. This shows uh, you know, the diligence followed by the uh, faithfulness. And there's uh, a good tandem there to be diligent for a long, long time, to be faithful. Secondly then, the New Testament likewise urges church members to diligence. So everything that should be you know, a work ethic when it comes to secular life uh, has a parallel in your Christian walk. And you should have the same work ethic in, in, uh, in your spiritual endeavors. You should have a spiritual uh, work ethic of, of diligence as well. Romans 12, 11, Colossians 3, 22 and 23, 2 Peter 1, 5 and following. Diligence in secular life, diligence in spiritual life. And it's, it's interesting to me because, of course, there's folks that kind of mix and match. Folks that are... Um, very, very diligent in secular life. They're the most fastidious, diligent, faithful, hardworking guys you'll ever meet in secular life. But in their spiritual walk, they're the biggest slugs around. You think, why? What's that disconnect? How can you be so diligent in the workplace and so fastidious in your, in your finances, in your investments, in, your, in all that, but then biblically speaking, in your, in your gift, in your ministry, in your effect, you're just, uh, you're not a hard worker at all. What's up with that? Or the other way around. They're a great believer and they're in the Word of God and they're, they're fastidious about their ministry and they're, they're striving for to bear fruit. But then their secular life, it doesn't reflect that. They, they, in their temporal walk, they can't keep a job, they're not working. They're, you say, well, what's going on there? Why is there that disconnect? We should have it both in both places. In both places. Romans 12, 11. Not lagging behind in diligence. Right? This is again the corporate application of believers in a local church. But love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. That's the key. You want to, if you're going to be a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, a pastor, whatever. Not lagging behind in diligence. Be the most diligent Sunday school teacher the church has. The most diligent piano player. The most diligent janitor. The most diligent diaper changer. Whatever it is. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. It goes on. This is all the corporate application here for the body of Christ. Colossians 3. Colossians. It's going to be our next book after Philippians. Colossians 3, 22 and 23. This is temporal life. Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Be the hardest worker on your shift because you're serving the Lord. You're not serving the boss that doesn't deserve it. You're serving the Lord. You act as if the foreman is Jesus Christ Himself, so you work harder than anybody else on your shift. Whatever you do, do your work heartily is for the Lord rather than for men. When my kids walk out the door headed to work, I ask them, I say, remember who you're working for. I remember who you're working for. And, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in different things. 
And uh, anyway, it helps, or it can help, if you want to keep that as your mindset. See, if uh, there's always a lifeguard in one of the at the pool and in, in across the street, and one of the there's a there is she has a thorn in the flesh, and it's one of our neighbors, and, and he's an uh, angry man, and he's ugly, and he says horrible things. He really is abusive towards the 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 college kids that are working there as lifeguards, you know. So, well, remember who you're working for. Okay, just remember, you know, keep your attitude where it needs to be. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Instead of, you know, I won't name the name, but just when when he starts getting ugly, just remember, that's Jesus. <laughs> that's not Jesus, she tells me. That's not Jesus. That's <laughs> well, pretend, okay? Act. Act as if it is. And when he's ugly, just don't answer back. Don't answer back. Just pretend it's Jesus and serve the Lord and be faithful. And uh, you'll be in obedience to Colossians 3. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Remember who you're working for. All right. Second Peter 1. This gets back now to the spiritual side of things. Second Peter 1. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. The sufficiency of Scripture right here. His divine power, verse 3 says, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge. Notice this. Everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Everything, the sufficiency of scriptures, the Word of God provides all things pertaining to life and godliness. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world that is in the world by lust. What a blessing we have in Christ to be saved, to have the opportunity to live in the Word of God and be partakers of the divine nature. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence. You don't just get uh, saved and then sit around waiting to go to heaven when you die. Uh, Salvation is the beginning of God's plan for your life, not the end of God's plan for your life. So it says, for this very reason, applying all diligence. And look what you have to inject into these things. In your faith, supply moral excellence. You're injecting this. You supply the excellence. In your excellence, you supply the knowledge. In your knowledge, you supply the self-control. And so all of this is the diligence of what you're putting into your Christian walk. There's different fields of endeavor where we say, well, you only get what you put into it. You get out of it what you put into it. That's true in, in, in anything, really. Your studies in school, your work, your uh, military success, we use, the more you pour into it, the more you're going to get out of it. That's called diligence and the fruit of diligence that God Himself rewards. The more diligent you are, you're reflecting Him. You're reflecting the Lord. The Father and Son are both diligent. And so uh, there's a chain of things here from faith to moral excellence to knowledge to self-control to perseverance to godliness, brotherly kindness, love. In your brotherly kindness supply agape love. For if these qualities are yours 
and are increasing. You never reach to a point where you say, all right, I've arrived, I'm retired, I'm done. Yep, got that, got that, got that. If you have them all, great. Increase them. Increase them. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he who lacks these qualities, or they're not increasing, he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from former sins. The, hap- the thing is we get lazy, we forgot we got saved. We forget why we got saved. And so instead of being diligent in our Christian walk, we become slugs in our Christian walk. Have you forgotten what you were saved from? So therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. As long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. In this way, the entrance into the entire internal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. And so the overcomers, the, the believers that are rewarded to the maximum, they're going to be entering, described here, with an abundance, abundantly supplied. There are going to be others, of course. They're not excluded from the kingdom. You can't lose your salvation. But they're going to be minimally entering the kingdom, not abundantly entering the kingdom. They're going to not have, in fact, some won't have anything but the resurrection bodies. Everything else is burned up as, as wood, hay, and stubble. So they don't have an abundant entrance or an abundant supply. They're going to have a minimal supply as they enter the, the eternal kingdom. All right, so there we have that. Moving on then to point nine, four villains are portrayed and exposed by the wisdom of God. Four villains are portrayed and exposed by the wisdom of God. Proverbs 16, verses 27 through 30. This warning echoes the parental wisdom warning given in chapter 6. A lot of similarities between this paragraph and one we dealt with back in chapter 6. This warning echoes the parental wisdom warning given in chapter 6. And so it's, it's interesting how you get a warning when you're growing up, something your mom and dad warned you about, and then later on in your adult capacity you encounter it for yourself and you go, oh yeah, I remember when mom and dad warned me about that. <laughs> what do you know? And now I've got to deal with it in adult capacity. Right? Now I've got to deal with it in my own priesthood, in my own standing in, uh, in this way. All right, so let's look at these verses in the eight minutes we have remaining. Proverbs 16, 27, a worthless man digs up evil while his words are like scorching fire. We'll talk about a Belial, the son of a Belial, some things that can even venture into profanity in some of the ways that Belial gets used in uh, different ways, but um, this is what it comes from the scriptures, and it comes from um, the angelic conflict as it relates to Satan himself digging up evil. He's working hard at it, while his words are like a scorching fire. A perverse man, a man of perversities plural, spreads strife, and a slanderer separates intimate friends. We talk about a slanderer and using verbal communication in a dishonoring way, and uh, a murmurer, a whisperer, a grumbler separates intimate friends. A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. He who winks his eyes does so to devise perverse things. In other words, you say one thing, but you're meaning just the opposite. You're lying 
about what you're doing to lead somebody into a trap and you've got a partner in the lie because when you winked that was his signal. That was his signal to join in your deception. He who winks his eye does so to devise perverse things. He who compresses his lips brings evil to pass. And so your facial um, your facial expressions become the giveaway to your partner in the deceit. That you're saying one thing while um, you, you, with a nod of the head or a compression of the lips or a, a, um, a wink of the eye, your uh, partner in this, in this uh, evil is ready to uh, commit the, the deed. All right, now let's look back at chapter 6. We're not going to get very far with this, but remind ourselves of what we studied. And if you want to take the time in the next seven days to go back through your notebook and uh, find the point there, I think it was a point three with some subpoints, or point five maybe with some subpoints in the chapter six outline. Verses 12 through 15. A worthless person, a wicked man. It's the same Belial that we're going to be looking at in, uh, in chapter tw- uh, 16. A worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a perverse mouth. So villain one and villain two both show up right there in verse 12 who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers. So we get the the wicked winker from uh, chapter 16 that's portrayed here as well. Uh, Who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil. He doesn't stop. He's either sinning or if if he's not actively sinning, he's planning the next one. He never stops. His heart is trained with greed and he's he's always uh, considering the next the next evil, continually devising evil, who spreads strife. Therefore his calamity will come suddenly. Instantly he will be broken and there will be no healing. That's what leads up to the six things the Lord hates, seven which were an abomination to him. The follow-up to this verse, uh, this section, 12 through 15. So we'll deal with this. We'll pick up next week with the man of Belial, the Ish Belial. Jesus was called this. Um, when he was accused of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub and uh, some of this, some of that gets debated in the etymology of Belial and Beelzebub, but as far as it goes, we'll talk about this and we'll talk about why it's worthless and what's worthless in the world's sight versus what's worthless in God's sight and uh, the applications there. Thank you, Father, for truth. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the blessings of opening our eyes to the Scriptures. Father, today was a day about diligence and hard work the way that our hunger can work for us. We want to be diligent in secular life. We want to be diligent in spiritual life, both at the same time, Father. And we're not going to sacrifice one to provide for the other. And uh, we're certainly not going to sacrifice our spiritual walk for the sake of our uh, material success. But Father, likewise, um, we shouldn't be slugs in the material world either, Father. If, uh, if, uh, if that's the case, then uh, we're, not, we're not obeying Your Word. So Father, we want to balance. We want to have both. We want to be diligent in, uh, in both our temporal life and our spiritual life. So thank you for opening our eyes to these scriptures, Father. Might we now make the application that we can have the abundance, that we can work with our own hands, we can provide one for another as we are designed to do in the body of Christ. I thank you in His most precious and holy name. Amen.